Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, synthetic biology, and more, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, and even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. In episode 154 of the podcast, the topic is taking antiques into the future. Our guest is R.T. Custer, CEO and co-founder of the Vortic Watch Company. In this com- uh, conversation, we talk about the rich history of manufacturing in the U.S. and combining traditional and cutting-edge technology to create unique, functional products and what learning to derive from building a successful business. International speaker and renowned author Michael Solomon has written over 30 books. He is currently a professor of marketing at the Hobb School of Business at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. Michael literally wrote the book on understanding consumers. His textbooks on consumer behavior, social media marketing, advertising, fashion psychology, and marketing are required reading in hundreds of business schools around the world. Take Michael Solomon's upcoming course, Engage, how to turn your bored customers into brand fanatics. You can use the affiliate code T-R-O-N-D, TROND, for $100 off the $679 single payment option or 3-P-P-T-R-O-N-D for $100 off the three payment plan. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories and you can find them at futurize.org slash episodes. We have collections of your top episodes organized by topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, emerging tech, or the future of work. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors and you can check them out at futurize.org slash sponsors. Before anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org where you can find hundreds of episodes with conversations that matter to the future. Please also leave a review. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Hi, RT. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Trent. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Uh, You have such an interesting story. Um, What at all got you involved in, uh, you know, this sort of very cool type of entrepreneurship? I know you studied engineering at Penn State, um, but then from there to doing a Kickstarter and starting a watch company, that's that's a bit of a stretch for me. It's a it's a very unique thing you've done, among many things that we'll talk about. I'm just sort of curious, how did that happen? Yeah, so um, I'll try to make a long story short because, like you said, it's it's you know kind of all over the place, and it is it is a a long story as it's basically my life story. Um, but you know, I I went to Penn State and, and studied industrial engineering. I ended up getting a job with Walmart in logistics out of school. Um, cause my focus was mostly like supply chain and things like that. And, um, during college, I 
you know, met my, my now business partner, Tyler Wolf. Um, and we were running a separate business together. We were painting houses for, for the summer and we became friends, um, started playing golf. And one day on the golf course, I think like my junior year, his sophomore year, we had a bunch of ideas about watches. Um, and it was sparked because he was wearing a watch on the golf course and I wasn't. And we had a conversation about like, okay, what, you know, your watch must get in the way when you swing. Like, you know, that, that's kind of what started the conversation. And basically by the end of the round of golf, we had a couple different ideas and business plans going of just like, Hey, you know, we both like how things are made. We both like engineering watches are interesting. Um, most watches are made in Switzerland or China right now. Why is that? You know? And so we started doing a bunch of research and we stumbled on the history of the great American watch companies. And those companies a hundred years ago made pocket watches in the USA, the United States. And most people don't know this, but the United States about a hundred years ago was the Switzerland of the world. We made the best watches and they were all pocket watches. And so when we stumbled on that history, we started asking more questions, you know, why, 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 right? Like, it's really fascinating. And um, we found out that most pocket watches today are scrapped for the gold or silver of their case, leaving the inside basically trash. And so we realized if we took the inside, the guts of those pocket watches, you know, the industry calls them movements, all the gears and springs. If we took the guts of those pocket watches and turned them into wristwatches, you know, we would have basically a 100% American made watch. It's a really cool story. It's upcycling. It's preserving American history one watch at a time. And after we graduated from college, we put that idea on Kickstarter. That was about 2014. And we called it the American Artisan Series. I was still working my full-time job. Tyler was kind of between things. So he was just like, hey, why don't we try to start that watch company we've been dreaming about for a while? We'll give it a shot. We'll put it on Kickstarter. He ran the show for the first couple of years while I um, had my corporate job. And um, Kickstarter was really successful, raised enough money to like basically prove product market fit, um, have our minimum viable product. And across those first two years of me having the corporate job, we you know, had some financing. We had a roof over our heads. We could be a little scrappy and figure it out. Um, and fast forward to today, you know, since we launched on Kickstarter, we've sold every watch we've ever made. People love the idea. Um, and it's just this really cool niche inside of the watch industry. Um, really getting back into what we love, which is engineering, history, preserving history, how it's made, storytelling, story-based marketing, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's one of the most fun businesses to run. Besides the fact that the products are cool. <laughs> well, RT, when you when you present it this way, it's obvious that you talked about it before and it sounds so linear and almost like natural that it happens. But I, I just want to go back to the fact that this is actually not that normal. I mean, this is not a startup in a garage that, you know, puts together some nice little software pieces and and, and goes online. You guys are essentially I mean, you're you're building these watches, or are you taking a, a lot of the existing uh, pieces? I mean, this is true manufacturing. You're doing some amount of precision manufacturing here. Yeah. So, um, and you know, you you said you'll you maybe use the video for this, but I'll I'll describe it for those that are that are listening. Um, I'm holding a pocket watch right now. So, if you imagine, you know, a pocket watch, it's it's just this, you know, glass front, metal back. Um, there's a crown at the top that you use to wind it. 
Um, a lot of people have chains on them that they put in the pocket, all that kind of stuff. Um, but when we get them, most of the time, they don't have their case. And so it's just the guts. It's just the face, the hands, and then the mechanism inside. And so you mechanism- buy these used wherever you can get hold of them. Correct. These are vintage, well, in principle, watches. But but like you said, they're parts of watches that have been scrapped or they're taken apart or sold yep. for, for what people thought was the value. Yeah, so it mostly comes from estate auctions. Um, so imagine a pawn shop, been in business for 50 years. They've been collecting these pocket watches. They've been scrapping them for decades. So they have a bunch of the guts um, just in a bucket uh, half the time, like in the back, right? Um, because they've scrapped the outside for the gold or silver. Um, but the the guts, or what we call the movement, is beautiful. I mean, it's it's like 100 to 150 gears and springs that are in there. So you say it's beautiful, and, and you did say that the U.S. was the Switzerland of watches, but mm-hmm. do these watches actually still work or do you have to do an enormous amount of uh finagling to make them because I'm, I'm assuming people who wear them don't just want them as a you know as like a luxury kind of item on their watch they they wanted to work as a hand watch right they they want the thing to actually roll absolutely yeah, yeah. so we yeah. We cherry pick from those estate auctions the best of the best antique American pocket watches. We try to find ones that have all their parts, but to your point, they need to be restored. And so we employ a handful of expert watchmakers who love restoring vintage and antique things like pocket watches, and they take apart every single gear and spring, polish, oil, put it back together. The industry calls it a clean and and oil and, and refurbish. Um, we call it restoration um, because it's, I mean, it's basically the same as finding a Model T Ford in somebody's garage that's been sitting there for, uh, you know, 80 years. And then now you have to go find the expert human, which there's probably six people in the States that can like fix a Model T, right? It's the same problem that we have. There's how do you find them? out there. How do you have find to find them? the best ones? Well, how do you find them? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a journey, right? We have a, we have a job description on our website right now. It's permanent, permanent right there. Um, you know, at this point, because we just constantly need watchmakers. Um, it's unfortunately one of those examples of like the skilled trade gap, um, where there's just not very many watchmakers in general. And there's not very many watchmakers that know how to work on antique American pocket watches because it is such a niche. Um, and so, you know, a, a lot of the times we find them through networking, you know, we'll, we'll meet one watchmaker and we'll say, Hey, you have any friends that do the same thing that like pocket watches. <laughs> and so we'll kind of network around and we'll find the watchmakers. And now we have, I think we have seven watchmakers. Most of them are contractors that are around the country. Um, and we are in the process of, of bringing at least one, hopefully two or three, um, in-house here in Colorado so they can do um, not just, you know, helping, helping us restore the original pieces, but also after sales service and warranty work and stuff like that, um, in-house. So yeah, that's, that's how we find it. Just conversations really. <laughs> it's such a fascinating story with so many things, uh, so many questions I have. I, I wanted to go through this one thing because it, it's pretty obvious, I guess, to someone who's in business that this is a little bit of a complicated, uh, an endeavor for for one specific reason, and I know you had to to fight your battles here. I mean, some the original owners of these watch companies do they still exist? Do they have any claims to the original 
watches and did you even think about that when you were on kickstarter or were you just sort of, sort of thinking hey this is cool we find some scrap on the you know on the graveyard and basically restore them and it's all going to be hunky dory fun or did yeah. you already realize that this potentially was a bit of a minefield yeah um so obviously i i, I know we're going with this um we originally had no like we just didn't think about that concept at all um these these old companies um and we call them the great american watch companies and there was 10 of them technically there was a lot more there was dozens of pocket watch manufacturing companies most of them though were smaller you know the 80 20 rule like 80 percent of the production of of an industry is made by 20 percent of of the companies that's those 10 companies that that we show on our website made most of the pocket watches out there and we did some research on those companies um just because you know we we looked it up and we were trying to figure out like okay can we even find enough pocket watches to make this a viable idea but that's the extent of the research that we did and the answer to that was yes they all made millions of pocket watches um and and from what we knew None of them really existed. Some of them were owned by big Swiss conglomerates, um, but you know they were making modern watches in China now. So we were just like, okay, well, you know, nobody really seems to be taking these old pocket watches and turning them into wristwatches, at least as a core business. So this seems like a great niche to get into, and we put that idea on Kickstarter, and it was really successful. And then you know, um, got a cease and desist letter from Hamilton Watch Company, which is a subsidiary of Swatch Group that I now know didn't really think that far um, at first. But but yeah, we got our first um, cease and desist um, about six months after Kickstarter, which was nine months before we shipped our first product. Um, so that was that was what, were, what were you thinking? What were you thinking at that point? Were you sort of saying, hey, we got ourselves into trouble, or were you saying I'm fit for fight, or were you just, oh wow, this was surprising? What what went through your mind? Um, so honestly, it was shock and disbelief. Um, you know, obviously, when when you get a cease and desist from the largest company in your industry, like technically, it came from Hamilton Watch Company, which is you know a smaller company um, based in Switzerland. And, and Hamilton was one of those great American watch companies. They existed from the late 1800s until about the mid 1900s. And then they went out of business and the, the trademarks and patents and everything were purchased by what became the Swatch Group. So like when we did the research, we were like, oh crap, this isn't just some little watch company telling us to not use their antiques. Um, this is the Swatch Group <laughs> coming after us. And so um, our... Our original attorney, you know, the the gentleman who just helped us set up our LLC and, you know, get all of our, you know, ducks in a row, as they say, um, we, we reached out to him because we had never, we had no idea what to do. And, and he was just like, well, this is interesting. Um, from my understanding, you're not doing anything wrong. He, he, and some of our original investors, they actually looked at it as like, this is kind of cool in terms of like, you already got the attention of the world's largest watch company. Like they either see you as a threat and they want to, you know, want you to back down. Um, or maybe you are doing something wrong and we should look into it. And as we did more research, we realized we were definitely not doing anything wrong. There was tons of, of law that protects, um, basically what we do is considered art. 
you know, we're upcycling, recycling, things like that. But they sued us over trademark infringement because technically the face of our watches says Hamilton or Elgin or Waltham or Ball, like one of those great American watch companies. It says it right on the dial of the watch. We don't change that. It's part of our mission, right? Preserving American history. And we say Vortic, um, our brand on the back, because we made the back, we made the case, right, um, to protect it. And so basically, from our understanding, as long as we correctly educated our customers, we were totally okay. But, you know, when you have a lawsuit like that with a multi-billion dollar conglomerate, you know, all the logic and reason goes out the window because they have so much money. And so um, they, ju they just kept coming after us, um, basically seeming as though they just wanted to put us out of business. And so my mindset, to answer your question, my mindset went from like shock and like, I don't know, to we got to protect our, our business model. Like if, if it's illegal to take a Hamilton pocket watch and turn it into wristwatch, then it would inherently be illegal to take an Elgin or a Waltham or a Ball. Like this kills our entire business model if this is not okay. Um, and so at a certain point when we had that realization, we realized not only were we defending the art of taking a pocket watch and turning a wristwatch, but we were defending upcycling in general. And now Vortec v. Hamilton, or I guess technically it's Hamilton v. Vortec, if you Google it, that legal case has already been cited by many other upcycling and recycling related legal cases um, now that it's over because thank God, right? Knock on some wood, fast forward, we won. <laughs> um, but it was six years and hundreds of thousands of dollars later. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's every startup's nightmare in mm -hmm. principle. But as you said, actually, for many startups, it uh, you know if you do get out of it somehow, it, it can be uh, can be an advantage. Let, let's talk a little bit more about the business side of this. Who who buys these products, and and why would someone buy a upcycled uh, hand watch? Is it because their grandfather was wearing one, or they are history buffs, or they are art collectors, or they are wealthy and want to stand out in the crowd? Wh who is your target market? Yeah. So interestingly enough, I would say at least 60% of our customers are small business owners and entrepreneurs, um, Americans. Um, and I mean, 98% of our business is done within the continental United States. We do ship watches internationally, but um, it's really difficult to export something like this. And so we kind of make it difficult on our website <laughs> because it just costs a fortune with taxes and fees and shipping and all that stuff. Um, and, and we do all direct to consumer. So we don't have retail stores, you know, around, around the country. Um, but because we're direct to consumer, I actually know a lot about our customers, um, especially because of the first, I mean, really the first five years of business, I talked to every single customer myself. Um, which I think is one of the keys to our success is we just, we learned, you know, I asked questions. Um, the first, I would say the first two or 300 customers, when I got a delivery notification, I personally called them and I said, Hey, I just want to make sure you got your watch, make sure everything's okay. Make sure you like it and you're happy with your purchase. And I actually got like four or five investors from those phone calls because they had just gotten their watch out of the box. And they were like, this is, first of all, the coolest thing I've ever seen. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a small business owner. 
do you need, are you raising money? Because I want to invest in your company. Um, and that was so cool. So for that reason, I know that the majority of our customers are small business owners and entrepreneurs like us. And so I think they're like, they're basically buying a Vortec watch instead of a Rolex when they get to that success level. Um, you know how a lot of people, they're like, okay, when I make a certain amount of money or I sell my company or, you know, I have my first child or, you know, they have this life event that they want to celebrate and they buy a Rolex. Like a lot of us are conditioned to buy the same watch our fathers or our grandfathers bought, which is a Rolex and Rolex has that branding. But a lot of people now, they want something more unique. They want something one of a kind. They want something that tells a story in itself, much less just their story. Um, and, you know, our watches are a fraction of the price of a Rolex, especially now. <laughs> um, and so it, it just makes sense um, that they would choose a Vortec instead of um, or in addition to a Rolex. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I uh, got a, uh, uh, what do you call it? An Omega Seamaster Aquaterra a, a bunch of years ago uh, for my wedding, actually. And I guess yeah. the price level is about the same. So it's sort of interesting for me to think about, you know, had that existed, uh, I guess, at the time and, and had I known, how would I compare I mean, are they comparable at all? So, you know, like, you know, take a, a take any sort of Swiss watch company that produces, you know, watches a little bit more on the low end than than a uh, Rolex. What what is it that you're buying really when you're buying uh, a Swiss watch versus you're buying uh, an upcycle watch? You, you think is there more? Uh, I mean, am, am I buying into American history essentially? Yeah. So. A couple things. Um, and it's hard. It's it's apples and oranges, you know, when you try to compare Vortec Watch Company to, let's say, Omega. And Omega is part of the Swatch group. So welcome back to the story, Swatch. Um, we, um, if, if you want to compare of similar price points, so a Seamaster, you know, something like that, um, Omega makes amazing products and they've been making them for a hundred years. The quality is insane. You know, the timekeeping is going to be better than something that's a hundred years old for sure. Um, it's an automatic. Most of them are automatic. So they're wind as you move. Um, that's not the case with a Vortec watch. You have to manually wind it because the movement's older than that technology. So that's kind of cool if you, if you're into that. Um, and then, you know, an Omega is going to be a lot more water resistant. So you'll be able to swim in it. You can, you know, if you fall in a pool or jump in a pool, um, you'll be okay. Vortec watch is, is water resistant, but not to that extent. Um, totally fine for day-to-day -day use, but we recommend not swimming in them. That's not what they're designed to do. It's a piece of history. It's a piece of art on your wrist. The biggest difference besides the price and all those things that I just talked about is that a Vortec watch is one of a kind. When you buy a Vortec watch, the watch that's on your wrist is the only one of its kind. It's the only one ever in existence. And it's one of maybe 2,000 total we've ever made in the life of the company. When you buy an Omega, and there's nothing wrong with this, but when you buy an Omega, you have one of 10,000 that they made that month in the factory. And that's okay. But that's really the core difference. And I think that's why American entrepreneurs, especially being the majority of our, our market, um, and just, you know, people that people that want to, to your, I think you said, like, express yourself differently, right? A Vortec watch has so many stories into it because, 
you're you're either telling the story of American history of like the great American watch companies and all the pocket watches and all that stuff. If you like history, you're telling the story of, of American manufacturing and like how the heck did they make these little gears and springs a hundred years ago? Blows my mind as an engineer. So if you're into that stuff, that's really cool. Um, you know, it, it makes that that difference, right? With Omega, they have billions of dollars of technology sitting in the Swiss factories. And so, yeah, it makes sense. They can make little tiny gears. A hmm. hundred years ago, without computers, without technology, the Americans in Boston figured it out. That's really cool. Um, so there's just a lot of little things like that, that really, honestly, they go back to what I call the provenance of the watch. So the provenance of your watch that you bought for your wedding is made off of the of the story of your wedding, right? Like it's a beautiful watch and you got married in it while you're wearing it. Like that's really cool. Now it has some provenance, especially to you. A provenance of a Vortic watch started a hundred years ago, right? And ends with you when you purchase it. You can create your own stories while you wear it, but like it already came with 50 stories. <laughs> so that's really the difference in my mind, at least. Uh, this is fascinating. I just want to understand one thing. So yes, they do cost uh, a little bit of money, these watches that you're selling, but how do you make money? Because you know you have to find the watches, you have to dig through all these estate sales, find the best ones, find the ones you think you can actually make run, because presumably... You know, a client would come back after six months and say, hey, this is not working anymore. That's no good for you. How, how in the world is this at the end of business? Uh, I'm just curious, you know, how, how long does it take you to upcycle even one individual? I guess it's hard because you're it's a long yeah. process. Yeah. So the, the best answer I can give you to that is um, we make roughly 400 watches a year. And so the supply chain is very complex. Like you said, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, I'm always buying estate sales. I'm always looking for the best pocket watches. The team is restoring them, building them into wristwatches. And then um, our business model for selling them is pretty simple. We make one new one-of-a-kind watch every day and post it online um, on our website and on Instagram at 12 noon Mountain Time. Um, and when it's sold, it's gone. So that's 365 watches a year. Um, and then we do other custom things. Like if you have your grandfather's pocket watch, you can send it to us on our convert your watch site. Um, and we do some other fun things like this watch I have on, which is called the military edition. And we make 50 of those a year and they come out on veterans day. So oh, it wow. kind of comes out to about 400 watches a year. You know, if we have a handful of people working five days a week, um, you know, it, it's probably, um, it's probably two or three days worth of one person's time. It's not that simple, but two or three days of one person's time to make each watch. Um, plus all the cost um, of all the materials and machines and all that stuff. So I, you know, I know you've learned a lot in this process. What have you done with that learning? I, you, you seem to be running other businesses now in addition to the watch company uh and and what what so what what sort of things are you sharing with i guess with the world apart from running this particular business you have, you've actually made it into a bit of an endeavor to start sharing your knowledge and and i guess uh 
try to teach people something about uh, what, what you've learned. If you were to summarize what, what, what there is in terms of learning uh, from this company that, that is valuable to, to other entrepreneurs, perhaps, I'm assuming those are, you know, that would be like, like your core market is other entrepreneurs trying to make something unique. What is it uh, that you start focusing on when, you, when, you start to, when you're sharing your, your insight? Yeah, so I thank you. Um, I've learned so much, and it's hard to uh, quantify, um, you know, the the amount that I've learned. And 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 to that point, um, you know, I so I, I started a, a digital marketing agency during the pandemic because honestly, I thought people were going to stop buying luxury wristwatches when there was a global pandemic. I, I figured that was going to happen. Thank God it, it didn't. <laughs> we sold more watches in 2020 and 2021 than we ever have. It's amazing. Um, still don't understand it. But thank you to all of our customers who purchased in the last couple of years. Um, but I, I originally didn't think that was going to happen. And so I started a marketing agency because I was like, hey, I love marketing. I'm good at it. It's my thing. Um, that's how I grew up. But both my parents were in advertising their whole career. So like, you know, I just I, I love that stuff. Um, and I was just like, okay, if I have to save my watch company, um, maybe I can make some money doing marketing. And I was starting to bring all of our marketing in house because Vortec couldn't afford a, a, a big ad agency itself. And so I was like, well, I already kind of have a little team going. Maybe I can sell services to other people and help other people. To answer your question, all the things I've learned, I still would not consider myself an expert at almost anything um, because I haven't you know, as an entrepreneur and now a serial entrepreneur with multiple businesses, I don't have the bandwidth to go deep and get depth of knowledge on many things. Um, and I've just kind of accepted that as like, that's, that's my journey. That's okay. Um, there's a couple of things that I would say I'm really good at, um, from running Vortec and that's, um, pitching, raising money, um, like get finding investors, um, and, and then story-based marketing, um, because we story-based marketing, specifically email marketing. Um, and the only reason I say that I'm, I'm good at that is because I have evidence <laughs> in Vortec Watch Company. We've raised over a million dollars in capital um, for a very niche business that should be very hard to raise money for, and it was. Um, and we don't have salespeople. We don't have retail stores. We don't really spend, I mean, I spend maybe six or $700 a month on Facebook ads and things like that. And it's mostly like retargeting and remarketing. Um, and that's because we've built an amazing brand um, and we're really good at marketing, especially email marketing. Um, and so one of the things that we decided to do, and it's been over two years now, I've sent an email to our email list every Tuesday for over two years to the point where people like yesterday, I forgot to send it. <laughs> I, I had a hard day <laughs> yesterday. Um, yeah. And it was like 6 p.m. when I sent it. Normally, I send it at 12 p.m. Um, and I got a couple messages of like, hey, um, I checked my spam and I didn't I didn't get Vortex email. Like, is everything okay? And I'm like, oh my God, thanks for reminding me. I'm, I had it all ready to go. I just literally forgot to hit send. Um, so, you know, those are the things that I'm really passionate about. I've gotten really good at. Um, and now I feel like I can on a podcast, even like this, I can just share like, you know, there's all kinds of little pro tips or little things that I can share that hopefully are helpful to other people that are either raising money or trying to build a brand. Um, and that it brings me a lot of joy to, 
you know, to, to tell someone something that worked for me and then I see them go do it. Like, you know, I, I definitely see why people want to be teachers like that. That is such a powerful thing. It's so much fun um, to, to witness. Um, and so that's, that's why, you know, even though the watch company still did well um, through the pandemic, I kept the ad agency because it was just a passion project. Um, plus, we use all the services from my agency for the watch company. So we actually save a lot of money on ad services. So here's my question, though, you are good at or you, you know, your brand stands out, but it stands out, it seems to me because what you're doing is so different. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of people who want to learn these things or who wish they had something that stood out. I mean, isn't their problem more that their product actually doesn't stand out that they than the fact that they don't know, you know, email marketing or something? Because I mean, you have the story you've told me here is so unique at least to me, right? So I'm, I'm thinking about it. It sounds really, really distinctive. So yes, uh, of course, a person who then is really good at marketing can put a spin on that story. And, and I guess the story you've told has that spin. But on the other hand, there's something very, very authentic about the process that you went through. And even if a person had no, you know, wasn't adept at marketing at all, this story I think would be picked up in some way. So I'm yeah. just curious, what is the relationship between the pitch and the authenticity when it comes to any kind of entrepreneurship? This is a really great question. And I'm really glad you brought it up because yes, I am extremely lucky. I am blessed with a fantastic idea and niche that Tyler and I had almost a decade ago. However, I, I'd like to challenge that mindset a little bit um, and just paint the picture the way I see marketing and advertising and sales in my head. I see marketing and advertising and sales as like this funnel. Um, it starts with branding at the top. It goes branding, marketing, advertising, and then sales. If you are really good at branding and marketing, then you don't need to advertise as much and you probably don't need salespeople. And yes, I got a head start because I, you know, Vortec Watch Company is just really cool and the products we make are super cool. But you're going to see, so we're, we're actually building a second watch company so we can scale because right now we can only make 400 watches a year. Of course, we can keep increasing price, but that's a, a not really a, a huge scalable business. And so we're building a second watch company and it's going to be harder to, um, it's going to be harder to scale that and to storytell that brand because we're going to make normal watches using modern components. The way that we're marketing it, though, is, is something that other people can use if they don't have a product that's as exciting. And, and that's why I want to challenge that, that concept is like most people just say like, OK, my product isn't that different from other products. And so you know, I'm just, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna have to sell. I'm just gonna have to spend a ton of money on ads and Facebook ads and stuff like that, get a ton of leads. And then I'm gonna have to do sales and discounts and things like that to get people in the door and pull the trigger. But, and I'm not comparing us or anyone to Apple in any way, but let's use Apple as an example. Apple's the best example of branding, I think that exists. For, like, 
they make computers and phones. It has nothing to do with an Apple, right? And there's all kinds of stories and all kinds of stuff that, that bring it together, right? But they are synonymous with that brand and their brand is quality. They make quality products that just work when you hit the button, right? Um, Coca-Cola is another great, they've spent billions and billions, probably trillions of dollars on branding so that they don't have to advertise. They don't have to sell. You just walk in and you see the Coca-Cola logo and you're like, you know what? That sounds really nice right now. <laughs> That's branding. You sold yourself, right? Um, so I would encourage people to think about other ways they can use branding and marketing to build a story around the thing that they're selling, even if it's not as exciting. And the way we're doing it for our new brand is we launched a YouTube TV show. It's called Custer and Wolf Building a Watch Company. And we realized, okay, these watches we're going to make in the future, they'll come out in about a year or so. They're not going to be that different than an Omega. They're not going to be that different than a Shinola. They'll be different, you know, a little different, but not massively. Um, so we're going to film the entire process of designing them, making them, ideating all the different designs and everything. We're going to talk to our customers. We're going to put everything on YouTube. Because that's how you build a brand and marketing. We will never have to run an ad. We'll never have to sell a watch and try to do a discount to sell someone because they will literally see the entire process of how we're making it. And they'll be like, I want one so bad. Like, why don't they exist yet? Like, I see them literally making it on those machines. And I, I know the name of the human that's assembling it. That's so cool. People don't do that. The Swiss brands don't do that at all. And that's how we can stand out without having some crazy designs, without having flash sales, without doing all this crazy advertising stuff that people do. We're focused on branding and marketing. And I hope that makes sense. But that's that makes a lot of, of like sense. I'm goal. just curious. Uh, I mean, that's a lot of transparency. Um, I, I guess I wanted to bring us a little bit into the the discussion about you know the future outlook here for for I, I guess originally I was thinking you know antiques and upskilling of of, of traditional industries, but uh, it strikes me that what you're saying is is interesting from from the perspective of uh, basically a new approach to manufacturing where you're mm -hmm. just so much more transparent and even if you're not individualizing everything. Your people are still, presumably, that's what you're saying. Interested in the origin story, uh, even of a mass product. Yeah, and 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 that's direct feedback I've gotten from so many customers. Um, they want to see how it's made. They want to talk to the owner. They want to see like a, a lot of times when people buy. A Vortec watch. If like if you go on our Google reviews or you look at the reviews on our website, they say my name or Kyle, our director of operations name in the review. That's really rare. You don't see that as much, but it's because we create um, a relationship with the customer. They're like, hey, my watch is awesome. And I th thank you so much, Kyle, for helping me pick it out, you know, pick out, choose which one, right? People don't say that, <laughs> you know, you're not, you're not seeing that on Google, even at restaurants, right? You, nobody remembers the, the server's name unless the server was fantastic, right? And so that's another thing to help build a brand or to help with marketing and do those things instead of, you know, having to sell, um, you, you have to find great people and then you have to just like 
let everybody do their job, right? Let the customer talk to the people that you found, build a beautiful website that sells for you, that educates the customer for you. So you don't have to answer any questions by the time it comes to the actual swiping of the credit card. Um, and that stuff just, it takes a lot of time, but I know it's going to be worth it because, you know, we have so many of our customers say like, Hey, that video of how you made the crown or how you made that screw. That was so cool. Can you share more of that? Like, I just, I'd, I'd love to be able to know where that stuff comes from. Every single customer asked the questions that you started off with. Where do you get the pocket watches? Um, how many pocket watches were made? Why is Hamilton different than Waltham or Elgin? Um, that, and yeah, part of it is because it's a cool idea, but also it's like the customer wants to learn more of the story. So why don't we just hit them with it up front and be super transparent and just tell it to them. And, and now they know all that stuff. And the mission there, and Tyler and I talk about this all the time, is the more you learn, the more pages you turn of the Vortic Watch Company book, the more you know, and the more you know about us, the more confident and credible you know, the process is and the more you want to buy something. Um, and that's not the case with a lot of companies, you know, every stone unturned, you're like, Ooh, I don't know, found something I don't like with us. We want to share all that stuff so that we can be an open book, um, because we're doing everything the right way and we want to, sh you know, show it off. Well, I guess that's what I wanted to bring it, it back to, which is you started talking about the skilled trade gap, you know, whether it's plumbers or tradesmen or, or in your case, watchmakers, you know, in, in older days. Um, you can talk a lot, a big game, right, about the future. And a lot of people want to be thought leaders and discuss, you know, oh, we, I'm so great. My company's so great. We're doing something really great. But unless you actually are doing something great, that, that was my point, right? Yep. What do you think? is the solution to this because let's just imagine a future where there is going to be still a market for for authenticity and there are some people who are willing to pay more for that because they value history or other things we've talked about um but who's going to make all those things <laughs> you know and is there going to be uh are there going to be these authentic products because you've done something truly unique and i i, I uh, you know compliment you for that can everyone find that? I mean, you know, this, as we said, is not your typical internet startup, but are the, the, there, sh there would be only that many kind of upcycling plays to, to come up with. So if everyone fashions themselves a thought leader, but, but they can't really accomplish something, they don't have a trade skill or, I mean, what do you do? Do you, do you just, is your game then to find these people and partner with them? In, in other words, I, I guess my futurist question here is just how do people stand out yeah. in the future? And is the solution to build a true skill or is the true solution more to kind of partner and, and, and kind of mix and match and, and find people that have something? I mean, you combine things. It's not like you were an expert watchmaker. You, you were an engineer, but you saw yeah. something. So I guess I'm just trying to round up the whole conversation here into at the end of it, you know, what are we looking at? What, what sort of future are we looking into? Something where, um, 
you know, and, and what what does an individual do in this future? What 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 is the strategy here? If you were advising a young person who said, yeah. "I could become an engineer, I could become mm-hmm. a tradesman. Eventually, I want to spin it to something. I clearly want to have a, a you know make a living, but I want to do a positive contribution to society." What is a person like that to do? I love this conversation. So, um, if you read "Building a Story Brand" by Don Miller, one of my favorite books, um, he talks about storytelling and marketing, and you you have to unpack the story in terms of who is the villain, who is the uh, hero, and who is the guide. And when you talk about thought leaders, thought leaders um, and and people who put thought leader in their you know LinkedIn bio, um, they are making themselves the hero of the of their own story of their company's story, um, and that might be good for them, um, might help them grow their company, might help them get credibility, but it is perpetuating the skilled trade gap because the hero of the story of American manufacturing are the humans that actually touch the things that are getting made. They are the skilled trades people, right? So when you think about the future, how can me and you and other people that uh, you know, are perceived maybe as thought leaders and talking on a podcast instead of building a watch. Like you don't want me touching the watch, right? I am just the talker. But how can I be the guide to show my customers the hero, which is my people and my products, especially when you talk about the people? So we have to talk about it. Us as thought leaders, us as the guides. We have to continuously bring this topic up and educate the consumer like, hey, you're not buying this thing from me. Yeah, you maybe like we could be friends. That'd be cool. Like I'd love to talk to you about watches, but I'm not actually making the thing. The true hero of this story are the people like Gordon, our watchmaker, like Derek, our watchmaker, like Kyle, our director of operations, who's putting the watch in the box and shipping it to you and talking to you and making sure you get the tracking number and all that kind of stuff, right? It's people like my business partner, Tyler, who taught himself how to use CNC machines. These We have millions of dollars worth of equipment that he taught himself how to use via YouTube. He just figured it out. He watched a bunch of videos like, yeah, some things went wrong, (laughs) but he figured it out. He's a skilled a skilled trades person, right? And as we talk about it, then we'll realize all the issues. One of the biggest issues is education. Um, and people have that that conversation that you just brought up. Should I be an engineer or should I be in a skilled trade? People don't know that you can come out of school, you can go to school for two years and be a watchmaker and make more than I made after four and a half years as an engineer right out of school. In half the time, for free, most of these watch companies like Rolex and Omega, they'll pay for you to go to school for two years. You have to pay for like your tools and stuff and your housing, but they'll pay for your school and then they'll pay you a fortune to be a watchmaker. More than, again, like, you know, I made, I don't know, 60000 or so when I, you know, graduated from college as, a, as an engineering uh, degree watchmakers, that's that's a good starting salary for a watchmaker. That's pretty average. Um, more than that is expected, uh, depending on where you live. 
Um, that's really cool. People don't know that though, because people like us aren't talking about it enough. And, you know, you look at someone like Mike Rowe and the Mike Rowe Works Foundations, you know, he's the dirty jobs guy, right? Like he's talking about it. He's trying to be a guide. He's got scholarship programs going left and right, right? We need more people like that. We need more schools that are training people on watchmaking and manufacturing and yeah, plumbing and drywalling and stuff like like we need those humans. Um, but those skilled trades just aren't talked about because there's lobbyists and billions of dollars from the colleges and the universities that are just, you know, pushing those conversations down. Um, and the branding of going to college has been, I mean, it was ingrained in me. I had to go to college. It was just like, there was, there was no question. Right. Um, I think that's going away now because people like us are talking about this and we're chipping away at it slowly, but we got to keep talking. We got to keep fighting and we got to keep creating those opportunities for people to go to school, um, and learn these skilled trades. Otherwise, to your point, there is no future for American made. It's not a thing anymore the other countries that are actually pushing the skilled trades will take it over. Uh, this is a f I just a fascinating conversation to me and I hope to, to, to my listeners. I, I thank you so much for bringing out, I guess, a little sense of history into this conversation. And uh, it has reminded me certainly about the importance of, I guess, rethinking the past as much as just remembering it. And so thanks a lot. Thank you. This was super fun. Um, love to continue the conversation anytime. There's lots more to talk about. Yeah, agree. All right, thanks. You have just listened to episode 154 of the Futurized podcast with host Trunarna Undheim, futurist and author. If you're interested in trans products as services, feel free to check out Futurist futurized.org slash store where you can book a keynote speech become a sponsor or partner request a podcast swap or buy a few of Tron's books such as Augmented Lean Health Tech, Future Tech Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games or Leadership from Below The topic in this episode was taking antiques into the future and in the conversation we talked about the rich history of US manufacturing combining traditional and cutting-edge technology to create unique functional products. My takeaway is that if you create something unique, evoking historical significance, and you don't really, then you don't need, really need a brand strategy. Perhaps, but Vortic Watch Company has all of that and still used influencer marketing to tap into new audiences for the fraction of the cost of traditional marketing options. What's for certain is that deep artisanal skills are as much in demand as always, if you give a twist to it. Watches and marketing remain timeless, each in different ways. Thanks for listening. And if you like the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in a uh, preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 134, Articulating the Future, episode 111, How to Demystify Technology, or episode 121 on the future of MarTech. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. Now, please share this show with those you care about. And to find us on social media is easy because we are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube, and Futurized too on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.